Welcome to Do It Today, where I talk to people about what they're doing today and how they're doing it. Today I'm talking to my friend Daniel Friedman, whose new book, Let's Get Physical, brilliantly chronicles the history of women's fitness. So Danielle really knows how to get things done, and we get into how she interviews sources, how to write pitches that editors want to read, and the three types of story scoops she learned about from our former boss. Here we go. For a little background for everyone, you're an author, journalist, a mom, and a frequent podcast guest. So thank you for gracing me with your presence on my newbie podcast. And then to share with people, I I wanted to say like you're an incredibly optimistic and positive person, especially when it comes to work-related things, career-related things. You're just someone I always go to for advice. And I thought you'd be a great person to sort of share your wisdom. I know you have a lot going on, but I kind of wanted to just zero in on today, if you could share maybe one work-related project or creative project that you're sort of focused on. I know there's more than one, but what's going on today? Thank you so much for having me on, Kara. This is so much fun. And I just want to say too that I am I am an optimistic person, but you also help to bring out my optimistic nature when it comes to work and creative projects. So thank you for that. Today is actually, I feel like in the scheme of things, pretty straightforward for me. I have a story due on Friday. I've been contributing recently to the New York Times' well section. My background is as a health and culture reporter. I recently wrote a book about the history of women's fitness culture. I'm working on a story for the section that I'll, I'll just say sort of vaguely is about Pilates. In my ideal world, I would have like a month at least to work on every single story that I wrote and coming off of writing a years long book project. Like I kind of had that luxury to get to just move at my own pace, but I'm readjusting to the world of real deadlines. So I have about a week to report this story. I started in force on Monday. So basically I'm going to be spending the hours between one and about 4 p.m. doing interviews. I think I have four interviews set up during that time. It's kind of rapid fire. I generally like to space out my interviews just because I think I'm an introvert at heart and I love reporting, but sometimes, you know, after an interview, I'll feel a little bit drained and spacing them out does give me time to kind of marinate on what the person said and process them. But sometimes, you know, reality just gets in the way. So it worked out that I have four interviews scheduled for today, which is good because I think that will be the bulk of my reporting. And then I can spend the next two days sifting through those interviews and writing. We've nerded out on this many times before, but what is your process for interviewing someone, especially when you know that you need to get something pretty specific from them? I think it really varies from piece to piece or project to project. You know, if it's a human interest story or a piece that's really driven by firsthand experiences, those interviews are much more kind of conversational and free-flowing. The kind of piece I'm working on this week is pretty service oriented and I'm mostly interviewing experts. I would say regardless of the type of project, I always start by just like completely immersing myself in the subject as best I can. Hence the often wanting to have like (laughs) time to read a book or two, you know, before, (laughs) before I launch. But if there isn't time for that, I will just, you know, do a quick deep dive into what's been written and just get my head kind of in the game. And also this helps me to be as informed as possible going into my interviews. So I'll do some pre-reading. I'll always, you know, read a little bit about the person I'm going to be speaking with, of course. And then I 
I always write questions. Sometimes I veer from them. I, I like my interviews to be conversational. I record all my interviews so the conversation can go in whatever way, you know, whatever direction it takes organically and I can be fully present. But I also like to have guideposts just in case. And with this particular piece, again, because I am on deadline and I have very specific questions I need to ask these folks, I actually have already kind of drafted an outline of the piece. And so while I'm talking to them, I have that draft, that outline open, and I'm kind of making sure that I'm hitting the necessary points while also keeping an open mind in case whatever they tell me does not, <laughs> does not confirm my previous research or, or goes in another direction. Just for people who might be new to reporting, you said that you record interviews and then transcribe them. You use like a service for that, right? You're not going through and re-listening to all of them like we did in the old days. That's right. I use a service called Trint. Basically, you upload the recording and, you know, in a pretty short amount of time, it creates a transcription. It's not 100% accurate, but especially if you want to just be able to kind of scan through the interview and you know, like there was one money quote somewhere, but you can't remember exactly, you know, how far into the interview it was. It's really helpful for that. When I do have time, I will often go back and completely re-listen to an interview from start to finish, which is just excruciating to have to like hear my own voice for, <laughs> for a second time. It's interesting how often when I go back and re-listen to an interview, something that they said strikes me differently when I'm just a listener than it did during the conversation. And maybe in the time that has passed, I've also developed like kind of a deeper understanding of whatever the topic is. And so I'm better able to appreciate something they said. So this comes back to the wanting to have lots of time, but there really, I think there really are benefits to being able to be, you know, just really, really thoughtful about your interviews and, and immerse yourself in them. At the same time, when deadlines prevent that, the service like Trent is really helpful and still does a pretty good job of allowing you to skim through the whole thing and refresh your memory. I'm curious, too, if doing a deep dive of re-listening to interviews and just sort of immersing yourself in a topic, is that where you find more story ideas? Yeah, sometimes it certainly is from going back and re-listening to interviews or just from things that people will say during an interview that I'll kind of make a separate note about. Gosh, my story ideas, there isn't like one primary channel. You know, I think it's a mix of personal experience. I, I have been doing more and more reported essays at a first person writing as I've gotten older. And I think a bit more comfortable exposing myself in that way. Much of what I write comes from first person experiences, even, and I mean, that goes for first person essays, as well as just reported pieces that speak to something that I've experienced or that I'm curious about. I recently published a piece also for the New York Times Well section about how weightlifting and strength training can be a tool for healing trauma. In my book, one of the constant themes is how physical strength can lead to other forms of strength, mental and emotional strength. But there's somebody who I connected with on social media through another person kind of doing work on the, the thinking side of fitness. And she published a book last year called Lifting Heavy Things about exactly what I wrote about. She had experienced a trauma, had a PTSD diagnosis and used lifting to heal and then she became a trauma-informed trainer. You know, I was just like, that's really interesting. 
And I started digging into it and it turned out just beyond her story, there happened to be a few groups over the past few years who've launched these trauma-informed weight training certification programs. And there's a pretty new but thriving subfield of research around this. It turned out to be a really rich feature. You know, when you're like a lifer journalist, you always have an ear open, an eye open. And I will say like my favorite stories that I've written are the ones where the ideas just came up completely organically as opposed to stories that were maybe more reactive or responding to a trend. And there's a place for that too. But I've just felt that the pieces that have had the most impact and that I'm the most proud of are the ones where I felt like I was kind of voicing something that needed to be voiced and hadn't been voiced so loudly yet. And I think something you do really well is write effective pitches. And I know pitches are sort of the bane of existence of a lot of journalists because it's like, how do I boil down this 2,000, 3,000 word idea into a paragraph? You know, how do you catch an editor's eye? Is it with a headline? Is it with a topic that, as you said, is previously not explored thoroughly? How did you learn to write such effective pitches? Oh. Oh my gosh. I mean, I still, <laughs> I still sometimes struggle with pitches. One thing I'll say is, you know, I can't kind of overstate how helpful it can be to have a relationship with an editor who knows you, knows your work, knows the quality of your work and who you can go to with like a kind of kernel of an idea, you know, or a half formed idea and say, do you think there's something here? Is this worth investing in? But that's something that in, you know, in my case, I feel like it took several years into my career. There are oftentimes when I'd like to pitch publications that I've, you know, never pitched before. I also have, I think I have the advantage of having been an editor as well as a writer and a freelancer. Um, I was a staff editor for many years at publications where, well, in jobs, I should say, where I was getting like thousands of emails and felt like I, you know, was constantly sort of trying to get to forget like inbox zero, you know, inbox a thousand. But in any case, um, I do, you know, I can't help but kind of put my editor hat on when I'm writing a pitch. And what that helps me to do, I think is, like you said, definitely think about the headline when we're talking about just like attention spans and hooking somebody, it's just an opportunity, you know, and, and it also, it's helpful, I think, as a, as you're conceiving of an idea to kind of, it's helpful to the writer to like boil it down to its most essential form. So writing a snappy headline, you know, it's that fine line between wanting to show that, like provide enough information to convince the editor that there's something there without going on and on and on. So keeping it impactful, but pithy. Actually, Kara, I often think about something that one of our joint early bosses used to talk about. I'm referring to Edward Felsenthal, who was one of the people who ran the Daily Beast when we were both there. He used to talk about different kinds of scoops. There was scoops of information, which is kind of the more traditional scoop, scoops of access and scoops of perspective. Hopefully I've gotten that right. <laughs> if I haven't, I'm, I've twisted it over the years that uh, in a way that helps me. But I think if in a pitch you're able to show that you have one of those three components, I think that'll go a long way. 
I will fact check that with Edward after this podcast. Uh, what a brilliant way to look at it because maybe that can also help you as you're doing that early reporting before you're pitching to sort of say, do I have this yet? Do I have one of these different types of scoops and how might this be attractive to an, you know, an editor or a publication? And there are, of course, many pieces, amazing works of journalism that kind of it's not like everything falls neatly into one or more of those categories, but it can be a helpful framework. And even when thinking about first person essays, like in some way, the writer might have a scoop of perspective there in sharing their story. I also wanted to add, and this speaks to everything that we've been talking about, but for many, many years when I was an editor and then, or, you know, a writer on staff, and I spent a few years covering hard news and a little bit of everything. I really longed to specialize primarily in health, the intersection of health and culture, because I found even in my early years of my career that my best ideas came when I felt like I had a depth of knowledge about something. Having an expertise allowed me to better recognize when something was noteworthy or news in a way that I wouldn't have been able to spot it if I was just sort of just had a surface level understanding of something. So it took me many, many years to get to a point where I was specializing. And then since going freelance almost six years ago, I've just been able to do that more and more. And the book provided me with almost like, you know, like a very specific form of specialization. But again, it's kind of almost counterintuitive, but it's by going deep in one area. It's been really fruitful in terms of allowing me to have some authority and spot what's new. That's something we sort of forget about in our early days and popping around and being generalists and learning about everything. But you can go really deep on one subject and what that can sort of lead to, you know, book ideas, long form journalism ideas. And it doesn't have to be limiting. I've sometimes felt like that, like, boy, I don't I don't want to specialize in one specific thing. Obviously, I'm all over the place because, you know, you're closing the doors on other things. But like you said, you find so many new perspectives once you are able to distinguish what's new and, and what's not. So you have many hours of interviews and I am going to let you get to that. And I was just wondering what happens like the second you hang up on that last interview? Are you going to work on the piece or do you turn to something else for the rest of the day, like life stuff? Or are you just going to power through and keep working on it? Oh, yeah. No, I will like immediately shut my laptop. I, <laughs> my brain, I think I just reached that point of saturation. Also, the later it gets in the day, the fuzzier my brain gets. So I will be shutting my laptop, letting the interviews kind of marinate and hanging with my three and a half year old son who probably wouldn't let me <laughs> do too much more work, even if I wanted to. So it's a really nice kind of uh, palate cleanser and shift that allows me to come back to my desk tomorrow feeling a bit more refreshed and ready to work again. Sammy is excellent at uh, instilling work-life balance. And <laughs> yeah. That's great advice for everyone that sometimes you can shut the laptop and let things marinate. Thank you so much for your time today and good luck with the interviews. Thank you so much, Kara. This has been great. Okay, that's like our fake ending. This podcast is really function is just my own like creative work therapy. So thank you. <laughs> truly, truly fun. I could have talked about this stuff for another hour with We can nerd out for decades. I'll let you get to it. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.